Super 70 Sports Podcast. Oh, hell yeah. Welcome to the Super 70 Sports Podcast. I'm Ricky Cobb. And thank you so much for tuning in this week. Uh, you know, sometimes I will play a snippet from a previous edition of the podcast, and I'm going to do that at the top of the show this week. My guest last week was former Major League All-Star Larry Parrish. And if you listened to the podcast uh, last week, you may know where I'm going with this. And if you didn't, uh, I have a, a humorous anecdote for you. Larry experienced a severe fear of flying during his career, and I asked him if he had ever been on a flight where he was afraid that uh, perhaps his life was in danger, and he told me during his career there were a couple of instances where uh, he thought that perhaps the airplane was going to crash, and one of those was a commercial flight taken in the 1980s by the Texas Rangers. The team was en route to Minnesota to face the Minnesota Twins when the airplane lost its hydraulics, setting up a situation where Charlie Huff, the great knuckleball pitcher, was asked essentially to be a captain in leading other passengers off of the airplane. And Charlie was not enthusiastic about the uh, flight attendant giving him that role. So let's listen in. Uh, last week's edition of the Super 70 Sports Podcast with my guest Larry Parrish. Charlie Huff hated to fly as much as I did. And we we played cards a lot. And he was, he always got the, the traveling secretary always give him, tried to get him a window, you know, the, the, the exit seat. When the hydraulics went out, I mean, we made a big dip, you know, and then they righted the plane, and and it was not a bad weather day. And you looked out, and it's like, man, I wonder what that was. I mean, there's blue skies out there. And then all of a sudden, the stewardesses started going up and down the, you know, the aisles pretty quick. And I looked at Charlie, and I said, Charlie, something's wrong. I, something's up. And I said, there's too much activity. And then it wasn't long. And the, the lady came by and told Charlie that because he was sitting by that window, she was telling him how to get it open. And then he was in charge of so many seats, making sure all these people got off the plane when we got there. And Charlie's like, ma'am, he goes, if I can, I'll get this door open. But he said, after I get this door open, I'm going to yell, y'all follow me, and that's it. I'm gone. <laughs> and, and, she, and she's like, no, no, no. You know, she got uh, sort of huffy with him and told him, you know, that, no, you're in charge of so many aisles. you got to make sure all these people get off. And he's like, ma'am, he says, you can get mad if you want to, but I'm just telling you up front. <laughs> if, we, if we get this thing on the ground I'll open this door but after that it's off 
Oh, man, that story absolutely killed me. Uh, fortunately, uh, Charlie did not have to lead people to safety. The Texas Rangers uh, flight landed uh, without incident in Minnesota, and all was well. But what an incredible uh, story that was. So funny. And uh, if you haven't listened to the podcast yet, there's more about... Uh, Larry's career and also a very scary flight that he experienced when he was a member of the Montreal Expo. So uh, make sure that you check out Larry Parrish on episode 16 of the Super 70 Sports Podcast. My guest today is a basketball legend, the number 10 all-time leading scorer in the history of the ABA and NBA, the all-time leading scorer in the history of the University of Kentucky, and the number two all-time leading scorer in the history of the American Basketball Association. Joining me now on the Super 70 Sports Hotline, Basketball Hall of Famer, Dan Issel. Dan, how are you? I'm great, Ricky. How are you doing? Doing very well today. Uh, you know, such a thrill to have you on the podcast. Uh, you were a, a big part of my youth uh, as a basketball fan. I was born in 1971 in uh, Kentucky and uh, I think one of my frustrations growing up uh, was feeling like I just missed out on uh, Kentucky having a professional basketball team and you of course were uh, a larger than life figure uh, in the state of Kentucky in the history of basketball going back to your days playing for Adolph Rupp. Yeah it was uh, it was really a, a special time uh, of course, I, I tell people I was blessed to play 25 years of organized basketball, and my four favorite years were the years I was at UK, um, because it, it, it might have grown some in popularity, but not much. It was uh, it, it was really the center of attention in in the state of Kentucky. Even even way back when, uh, and and then of course uh, getting to stay in Kentucky and playing five years with the Kentucky Colonels uh, in the ABA uh, again, um, you know, as time passes, Ricky, you forget the bad things and only remember the good things. But uh, there were a lot of a lot of good things about the ABA and about playing in that league, and of course, uh, winning the championship in 1975 uh, in Louisville was. Uh, uh, it's still the biggest thrill of my basketball career. Well, let's go back to those days at the, at the University of Kentucky to uh, to start out this conversation. Uh, you are, of course, the all time leading scorer in the in the history of the, of the University of Kentucky uh, basketball program. And given the way that guys uh, uh, go pro early now, that may be a that may be a record that stands for a very long time, Dan. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm surprised that it's that it's uh, that it is uh, stood for as long as it has. I mean, uh, I graduated in 1970, so that was a, a long, long time ago. Uh, and uh, and for the players uh, uh, not to be able to break that record, I think you're I think you're right. And of course, uh, I, I was I had the single game record till a few years ago, and uh, Jody Meeks. Uh, had an unbelievable game at Tennessee and, and broke the individual record. But you're absolutely right. The way that it's set up today, and and I don't I don't see it changing. I mean, at some point, uh, you know, maybe they'll make the kids stay in college for two years. But uh, uh, yeah, with with all of the talented kids leaving early to go to the pros, 
uh, it might stand a while longer. What do you think about that, the, uh, the early entries? I feel like even when I was a kid, and I was really coming of age as a, as a basketball fan in the late 70s and early 80s, you, you got to know the players. They were, they were there for a while. I mean, of course, in your days, uh, uh, freshmen uh, weren't eligible. But when I was growing up, I mean, I saw guys like Ralph Sampson play four years of college ball. You felt like uh, you, you got to know the players a little bit. There was some continuity. Right. It's, it seems like uh, the college game has lost something because of that. Well, I, you know, I, I hate the rule because, as I just said, you know, my four years at Kentucky were my four favorite years. Now, I, I understand uh, uh, a lot of the guys today, uh, you know, aren't, aren't uh, uh, as financially well off as they could be. And, and uh, that's a lot of money we're talking about. And so to, to go to the pros and be able to take care of your family and, uh, I, I understand that, but I wish that the kids had a chance to experience four years of college. Now, maybe I was just lucky, and not every place has that, but uh, I, I remember distinctly trying to talk Rex Chapman out of leaving early. I, I, I had a, I, I, I've known Rex since he was a little boy. I played with his dad, Wayne, uh, at, at the Colonels my first year. And, you know, Rex was six, seven years old running around the court in the locker room. But I tried to talk him out of leaving. I said, you know, you stay here. You'll be the all-time leading scorer, and, and, the, and the fans will love you. And, uh, you know, I'm sure they still do love him, but uh, it would have been real special had he stayed the four years. And, and I, I wish they changed the rule, but uh, uh, they're not going to change it anytime soon, that's for sure. Well, tell me, tell me about Rump. Because Adolph Rupp, of course, was an institution uh, in the state of Kentucky. Forty-one years, I think, as the as the head coach from uh, from uh, uh, the uh, early '30s through the through the early '70s. And I, I know that uh, he was, you know, very near the end of his career during the time that you were there. I believe he coached a couple more seasons uh, after you were gone, two or three. Um, what were your impressions uh, of Rupp as a as a coach and as a as a man? Scared to death. <laughs> he, <laughs> he, he was a, he was a strict disciplinarian. We could not talk during practice. If you can imagine that, can you imagine the kids today telling them you can't say a word from the time practice starts until it's over? I mean, all, all you heard at our practices was the squeak of the tennis shoes, the bouncing of the ball, and Coach Rupp's voice. And, uh, uh, but I, I was very fortunate. If, I, if, if my relationship with Coach Rupp had ended with my graduation, uh, I, I might not feel the way I do, but I was very fortunate. You're absolutely right. He coached two more years after I graduated. And then we had a basketball camp together, and then for a few years... Uh, Coach Rupp was connected uh, with the Kentucky Colonel organization, and I got to know Coach Rupp uh, outside of the game of basketball. And he was, uh, at that point, he was a very generous man. Uh, you know, he was tough on the outside, but uh, but he was. Uh, I, I really got to know him and got to love him after. Uh, my my playing career was over, but he uh, 
Yeah, he he was a taskmaster, that's for sure. Well, w- one more thing I have to ask you, and I'm, I'm itching to get to the uh, to the ABA, but uh, you know, one of the guys that that you squared off with uh, throughout your collegiate career, and I believe you always came out on the winning end, uh, but uh, certainly uh, not without uh, Pete Maravich uh, putting up some some uh, spirited uh, efforts uh, against you guys, and of course. Anybody who is aware of Pistol Pete's uh, college career knows that he averaged over 44 points a game. Uh, and for, for those of you who, who don't know what I'm talking about, I didn't misspeak. He averaged over 44 points a game uh, for LSU for the entirety of his career. What was it like going up against uh, Pistol Pete and uh, those LSU teams that you guys overall had a little bit outgunned, but Maravich was uh, you know, really something? Yeah, Pete. Pete was terrific. Now, Ricky, you talk about records that'll never be broken. How about some of those scoring records? I tell people, my senior year at Kentucky, I was the second leading scorer in the nation, and I lost. I, I only lost the scoring title by ten points. <laughs> so close per, per, per game. Oh. Per, ten points per game. He he averaged forty four, and I averaged thirty four. So. Uh, th- th- those records certainly will will never be broken. But you're you're absolutely right. And uh, you know when I used to have a chance to talk to younger people who who remembered Pete and, and knew of uh, knew of Pete, uh, that's exactly what I used as a barometer of how important team play is in the game of basketball. In the in, a lot of coaches in the SEC would try to devise ways. To stop Pete, they do a box in one or a triangle in two. But Pete was so clever with the basketball. He's not the best shooter I've ever seen. Far from it. But as far as handling the basketball, passing the basketball, you could run all five guys at him, and he would be able to get an open shot. Uh, But a lot of SEC coaches tried to devise these ways to stop Pete, and you couldn't do it. And Coach Rupp's philosophy was, hey, we're going to play him straight up. We're going to guard him one-on-one, and we're just going to make sure the other four guys don't beat us. And in the six games that we played head-to-head, because we were contemporaries, same year, in the six games we played head-to-head, Pete averaged 52 points a game. (laughs) And And they never came closer than nine points to beating us. And so... Um, he, he was phenomenal. He, he was the best uh, best ball handler and passer I've ever seen. Well, I'll, I'll tell you, I was looking at a, a box score uh, earlier this afternoon in anticipation of speaking with you, and it was uh, February 21st, 1970, in Baton Rouge. Uh, Maravich goes for 64 against you guys, and I'm I'm pretty sure you'll remember this game because you yourself countered with 51 and 17 rebounds as as you guys won. But I mean, what an incredible uh, duel that was! <laughs> and and I'll tell you, of course, you know back then uh, they didn't have all these uh, all these uh, sports channels or ESPN or anything like that. If if uh, if you were uh, on TV nationwide, it was on a regular network. Uh, and uh, the year before that game that you just referenced, uh, 
uh, Lou Alcindor, of course, Kareem, uh, uh, played against Houston and Elvin Hayes in the uh, Astrodome. And that was the, uh, that game was carried on more stations across the country than any college basketball game had ever been. And that game that you just talked about broke that record. That, that game was shown on more channels across the country than any college basketball game up until that point. No kidding. I did not realize that. Yep. Well, if you're going to score 51 and grab 17 rebounds, you pick the day to do it, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, as long as we won the game, that was the most important thing. Well, and, and going into your ABA career, one of the things that strikes me so much about your career is, is I mean, you played on winning teams uh, consistently throughout your career, certainly in the ABA. And I know that um, many of my uh, listeners are, are old enough to well know this, and, and, and some may not be. Uh, the Kentucky Colonels were a, a very proud franchise, really a, a, a cornerstone franchise in the uh, American Basketball Association. And, and every year that you were there, you guys were were uh, highly competitive and, and, and in the mix uh, come playoff time. For you coming out of college, uh, obviously you would have been a, a high pick in, in the NBA if that had been the direction that you had indicated that, that you wanted to go, but you opted to uh, sign with the Colonels and, and go to this really fledgling league that I believe at that point in time had had been around for three seasons uh, uh, prior to uh, your graduation. Can you kind of take me through the decision-making process when you're obviously a coveted player, uh, two-time All-American coming out of uh, college ball and um, trying to decide what you're, what you're going to do with your professional life? Yeah, uh, it... Uh... Well, starting from the very beginning, I got a call from the Dallas Chaparrales, who uh, a year later would become the San Antonio Spurs. And I got a call from the Dallas Chaparrales, or, or my my representative did, and they said, uh, we've drafted Dan in the APA draft. And my representative said, well, I, I can tell you this, the only team that Dan will even consider playing for in the ABA is the Kentucky Colonels. And uh, remarkably, about a week later, uh, the Kentucky Colonels called and said they had my draft right. So <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's how I wound up uh, being drafted. It was, it was really a pretty easy decision, Ricky. Again, my, my representatives talked to, uh, you know, some of the teams that had the higher picks in the NBA draft and, and the money, uh, the money was was pretty comparable. Uh, but the important thing was, uh, you know, I I got to stay in the state of Kentucky. I fell in love with Kentucky when I uh, uh, when I went to school there, and I married a girl from Lexington. And and the fact that I could stay in the state and and play professional basketball. And uh, you know, you referenced earlier that I'm the second leading scorer in the history of the ABA. We've got to give the leading scorer a little credit, my good buddy uh, Louis Dampier. And of course, Louis being in Louisville and being with the Colonels uh, also helped in that decision. But when we found out that the money was going to be about the same, um, uh, it, 
it really was a, an, an easy decision. And, and you know what? I, I have never regretted it. Not only did I enjoy my ABA days, and as you said, we had some great teams. We only won one championship, but we might have had the best team in the, in, in the ABA three or four years that, uh, that I, that I was there. But, uh, uh, you know, that, that made the decision pretty easy. And I, I'm not so sure at that point. I would have been ready to play center in the NBA, and so it was a great, uh, great opportunity for me to grow up. And uh, the the amazing thing about that team, Ricky, is there were four uh, Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame Hall of Famers on that team: uh, Artis Gilmore, uh, Louis Dampier, and Coach Hubie Brown. And for one organization, one team at the same time to have four basketball Hall of Famers, I think is just remarkable. Absolutely. And and you mentioned Artis Gilmore. Uh, of course, your your rookie year, you led the ABA in scoring, and you guys went 44-40, and 40, which is certainly respectable, but uh, that 71-72 season, uh, looking at the team's record, you guys went 68-16 and 16 with uh, with yourself and, and Artis Gilmore, uh, you know, doing some incredible work uh, down low. I, that team didn't uh, win the championship. I don't even believe that you guys went to the finals that year. But we didn't. But what an unbelievable uh, team that was! I mean, you win sixty-eight games in in any league, and and that's impressive stuff. <laughs> well, the the amazing thing is, is that we did go uh, the my rookie year when we were forty-four and and forty. Uh, that team just got better and better as the year went along, and we did go to the finals of the ABA that year and lost to. Uh, to the Utah Stars in uh, in seven games uh, in the ABA championship. Uh, Zelmo Beatty. Uh, yep, Zelmo Beatty, Willie Wise, Ron Boone, uh, and uh, that was a great series. And they they won the seventh game in uh, in Salt Lake City. Uh, but um, uh, you're right. We uh, that that uh, sixty-eight and sixteen. Uh, I think everybody was shocked when that team didn't win the ABA, and we got we got knocked off early. Uh, I remember we were playing the the Nets, and they uh, they, they basically double teamed Artis every time he caught the ball, and double teamed me every time I caught the ball, and and uh, and double teamed Louie, and uh, you know uh, had the other other players try to beat us, but. Uh, that's what I said. We only won one championship, but we probably had the best team three or four years that we were there. Yeah, I mean, the following year, you guys went seven with the with the Pacers and um, got beat on your home floor in the in the deciding game. And of course, two years later, you you guys uh, took care of the Pacers and 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 won it all. I, that seventy four seventy five team, uh, Hubie Brown. Uh, has has been very clear through the years that uh, when people talk about the differences in competition level between the NBA and the ABA, he's he's always been unequivocal that that's the the greatest team that he ever coached, and and he would basically have put you guys up against anyone. Yeah, and and Hubie was the reason we finally got over the hump. I mean, um, you know, we uh, we had some great teams, but really didn't understand. I don't think. Uh, you know what it took, and Rook uh, uh, Hubie's first year there 
was that 74, 75 year. Uh, and we just, uh, we, we wound up winning the last 10 regular season games and just blitzed through the playoffs. We won, uh, won all three playoff series four games to one. So, um, you know, we, we, we wound up, uh, winning 22 out of our, out of our last, uh, 25 basketball games. So that, that was, uh, that was an unbelievable year. And, and Hubie deserves a lot of credit for that. How do you answer that question in terms of the, the the level of play between the two leagues? Because I know that in those days, occasionally there would be some some talk of having a sort of a challenge series between the the ABA champions and the NBA champions, and that talk was always coming from the ABA uh, to, towards the NBA, and it, and it never happened. But you guys did play a, a number of preseason games. Uh, through the years against NBA teams. How did you assess the relative level of competition uh, during those years? Well, I, I, here's how I answer that. The, the, the first two years after the merger, uh, the Denver Nuggets won the Midwest Division. Uh, the first uh, All-Star game uh, after the merger, half of the starters were former ABA players, so uh, you know I'm, I'm sure I, I would get an argument from a, from a lot of people, but I, I would say the last three or four years of the ABA, uh, we, we were just as competitive as as the NBA. The year we won the ABA championship, uh, the Golden State Warriors won the NBA championship, and we did challenge them uh, to a series. And of course, it's understandable why the NBA would refuse. I mean, that they had everything to lose and and nothing to gain. Uh, but uh, and and the reason, Ricky, that we were able to be, in my mind, as good as the NBA was, the NBA still had a rule that you could not join an NBA club till your college class graduated. Now, it didn't matter if you went to college or not. Even if if you didn't go to college, you had to wait four years. Uh, until you could play in the NBA. And, of course, the ABA, you know, started taking they, – they would have taken an eighth grader if you could play. <laughs> and so, so you know, we got people like like George McGinnis and, and Doc and uh, George Gervin, and you can just go on and on and on, Spencer Haywood. Uh, we, the ABA was getting some incredible talent because they were taking these players early, and, and the NBA wouldn't. That's a really great point, and I do. Do you think that the reason that the, the the NBA was kind of slow to move in that direction was it was it arrogance? Because I, you know the impression that I've always gotten from from what I've read about the two leagues during that time is that the the NBA had a little bit of a superiority complex, if you will. Yeah, no, no question about it. I mean, you know, you've heard comments from NBA people well the, the the ball they play with belongs on a seal's nose not not on a basketball court and but uh, I find it interesting that it didn't take the NBA too too long after the merger to adopt the the three point line so uh you know there were a lot of things we did in the NBA in fact uh Bob Nedelicki who was uh <laughs> was was a a a really uh great uh, competitor of mine that played for the Indiana Pacers. 
Bob just sent me a T-shirt the other day, and it's got an ABA ball on it, and it says, we changed the game. And I, I, I love that T-shirt. I'm not going to wear it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to frame it or something. Because the ABA really did change the game. Not only is that where the three-point uh, shot came from, but prior to the ABA, the NBA was a, was a, was a disaster to watch. I mean, teams walked the ball up and down the court and, and crammed it inside to the big guys. As, as late as late as the early 70s, the NBA championship series was shown after the late news. It was yeah. on tape. The championship series was on tape delay. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, we, we really did, we really did change the game because the three point line opened the game up. Teams would get up and down, and uh, and there was a lot of scoring that went on, which the fans love. So, um, yeah, I, I I I don't I don't let anybody tell me in those days the NBA was better than the ABA. What did what did you think about the red, white, and blue ball initially? I mean, I I think for for myself and probably for for many other fans, it's so visually striking. We loved it, particularly as a kid. Uh, you know, who doesn't love the, the the colorful red, white, and blue ball? But uh, what was it like for a player who, you know, obviously you've grown up your entire life using a traditional basketball, and now they they hand you this thing. Yeah, you know, amazingly, uh, I would say the first couple of days of practice, you know, you you would you would notice the difference, and uh, but amazingly, it took a very short time before it was just a basketball, and uh, you know, I I never did think that uh, that. In fact, I I thought because of the rotating panels. It was really kind of a teaching tool. I mean, you could tell uh, right on your release if you were getting the proper release and the proper backspin because of the different colored panels. So, um, you know, it, it really, it really didn't make that much difference. Was was there any degree? And, and, and as you've already noted, that it's not as though the NBA was uh, uh, anything approaching uh, what it is today in in terms of media coverage. It was a different world back then. But but relative to the NBA, you guys were kind of toiling in in uh, relative uh, anonymity. Was that something that that, that bothered the players uh, to, to any degree? That maybe the uh, uh, feats and accomplishments that you guys were uh, uh, making weren't really being uh, recognized on a national scale. Yeah, and uh, you know, it uh, that that was the the fact that they didn't include uh, the NBA didn't include any of the ABA stats or didn't include any of those years as far as your retirement. Uh, but uh, there was a rumor, Ricky, every week that we were about to get a national contract uh, for uh, television. There was a rumor every week that the merger was going to happen. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, and, and we played in smaller markets. I mean, you know, we had, uh, there was a team in L.A. for about a minute and a half, and there was a team on Long Island. But, you know, we had teams in, uh, uh, you know, in, in North Carolina and in Virginia and, and Louisville and Indianapolis, for that matter, weren't that that big, those big markets then. So, um, 
you know, it, you're right. A- anonymity is a great is a great word, but uh, uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. Well, l- let's go to that last season, the uh, b- before the merger, when things sort of um, reached a critical mass for the for the league. Now, now prior to the beginning of that season. Um, and, and we've talked about your connections to Kentucky, three years uh, uh, starring uh, varsity ball with the University of Kentucky, and then uh, six years, uh, excuse me, five, five years with uh, the Colonels, and you get essentially sold to the Baltimore Claws. Uh, <laughs> not like, you know, and I know that I, I definitely know that I have some listeners who are thinking the Baltimore Who's, and and I understand that because the Claws ultimately disbanded after three preseason games, and uh, perhaps there are some of you out there who aren't aware that uh, the Hall of Famer Dan Issel is a proud former member of the Baltimore Claws, but you are. I'll I'll tell you what, you're impressing me, Ricky, with the homework that you've uh, done. Uh, Because we never got that national TV contract, uh, teams uh, by then, 73, 74, 75, began to to fall by the wayside because, uh, you know, it just wasn't financially feasible. And, uh, and the, the ABA was doing everything that they could possibly do to keep the league alive. Uh, and, uh, the, the team in Memphis was basically given to a couple of guys in Baltimore who promised that they would keep the, the, the league going. And, you know, John, John Y, even though we won the, uh, the championship in 75, uh, John Y. Brown, who was the owner, he and his wife Ellie, uh, lost money and it made sense to him to sell either artists or, or myself because we were the, uh, you know, the two players that would have brought, brought the most money. And so, um, I was, I was sold to this team that had been, uh, given to Baltimore. And my, my attorney after, uh, I, I have, I really blanked those 10 days uh, out of my life. I, I, I tell myself I went straight from Kentucky to, to Denver. But uh, my attorney, after it was all over, my attorney uh, wrote the uh, sports editor of the Baltimore Sun uh, asking for a picture of me in a Baltimore Claw uniform. And as you said, they, they didn't even they, – they lasted three exhibition games. They didn't even have practice gear that had Baltimore on it. We were still using the old practice gear that said Memphis <laughs> when we were practicing in Baltimore. And uh, and so he, he wrote the, the editor, sports editor of the Baltimore Sun for asking for this picture. And, and the, the sports editor wrote back this great letter saying, uh, uh, I, have, I have researched your request and have, uh, and so far have been unable to find that any such picture was ever taken. He said, in fact, Trying to locate somebody connected with the Baltimore Clause is like trying to locate last evening's thunderstorm. <laughs> which I thought, I thought that was—I thought that was a great, a great line. But uh, you know, uh, again, everything worked out for the best because I—I uh, uh, I wound up in Denver uh, basically because the John Y had, had sold me to. Uh, to Baltimore and never received a payment. And so the Denver Nuggets had drafted Marvin Webster, uh, number one that year, a seven foot center. 
uh, and um, and he came down with hepatitis, and so uh, he called uh, Denver, and uh, you know Denver said, "Sure, we'll we'll buy you." So and so the the money actually went right from from Denver to uh, to John Y. Brown, uh, and uh, and and then teams continued to fold so that by by the All Star Game that last year there were only seven ABA teams left and the all-star game was here in Denver and uh, we were we had the best record in the ABA so the Denver Nuggets that last year of the ABA played uh, the uh, all-star team uh, from the other six teams in the ABA and of course that uh, that all-star game is famous because uh, you know an, another uh, thing that had never happened before happened in the ABA with the slam dunk contest. Now, and that was the first first ever slam dunk contest. And that was really, in many respects, that was the father of what we know now as NBA All Star Weekend. Uh, it, it was an extravaganza. I mean. Uh, it, it, particularly compared to anything that had ever been seen before. I mean, it's, uh, I'm sure what they do now is uh, even more of an extravaganza. But, it, but at that time in 1976, just having a slam dunk contest was, was sort of revolutionary. Um, Absolutely. And I, I, we had a, a concert. I think Glenn Campbell put on a concert the night before the All-Star game, and, and we had the slam dunk contest. And, and you're exactly right. It's... Uh, it was the forerunner of what we what we have today as far as the All-Star Game weekend. What are your recollections of that slam dunk contest? Because I actually had uh, your, your old uh, Denver teammate, Gus Girard, uh, on the podcast some while back, and uh, Gus was uh, talking to me about how you know the players just lined up and were as awestruck by uh, Dr. J as, as the fans were. Yeah, I mean, you know, we'd never seen it. It was the first slam dunk contest ever, and they had they had judges, and uh, of course, uh, you know, the two favorites were were David Thompson and uh, and Julius. And uh, I remember Julius walking off steps from the free throw line down to the other free throw line, and 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 here he came running. And took off from the free throw line. He was actually three or four inches inside, but uh, you know the, the 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 arena was packed, and 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 Julius runs the length of the court, takes off from the free throw line, dunks the basketball, and the, the whole place went up for grabs. I mean, it was it was obvious the slam dunk contest was over at that point. Well, you mentioned David Thompson, who, of course, was uh, the, the Skywalker and an NCAA uh, champion at, at NC State. And, uh, you know, you guys in Denver there in 75-76 put together a heck of a season. You won 60 games. And it should be noted that you guys won the All-Star game. People say, who, yeah. who, won the, who won the All-Star game that year? Was it the East? Was it the West? No, it was the Denver Nuggets that uh, won that All-Star game. And you guys, of course, went on and played uh, Julius Irving in the Nets in the, the uh, last uh, ABA uh, final series. And they took you guys in, in six games. And, of course, you played in the last ever uh, ABA game. Uh, what are your memories coming out of that 76 season 
And when did you realize that, okay, this, this long anticipated, much speculated about merger is, is actually going to happen now? Yeah, and, and you know, we, we had our, our president and general manager at that time was uh, uh, a gentleman by the name of Carl Shear. And Carl Shear had been, uh, had worked in the NBA uh, head office at one time, and he was pretty well connected, and, and he was a big part uh, of that merger. But it was, it was real interesting to hear uh, all of the, um, all of the rumors and and everything that was happening and and who was going to who was going to be involved and, and how they decided what teams uh, were going to be involved in the merger and and of course the four teams that went uh, into the NBA played a, paid a dear price I mean there was a a big fee for joining and no television money for a couple of years and uh, maybe not a first round draft pick the first year. And then the, the other teams, uh, the other three teams that didn't go, uh, of course, their players were dispersed and, and artists wound up with the Chicago Bulls and Louie wound up uh, with the San Antonio Spurs. But, uh, you know, we, we were pretty excited after years of, uh, of kind of playing in a vacuum. You know, we were very excited here in Denver that, uh, that we were going to have a chance to to go as a team into the NBA. And and as you noted, uh, you guys were successful uh, right away winning uh, division championships. Um, but as a, as a guy who, to, to some degree, probably, uh, I'm sure even right now, his heart, part of your heart at least, is, is in Kentucky, uh, how did you feel about the, the Colonel's franchise uh, being folded, I believe John Y. Brown got three million dollars to fold the team, and then of course uh, wound up buying the uh, the, the Buffalo Braves. Um, did 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 you think did you think that Kentucky had a chance to be uh, a part of the merger, or was it a situation where you know reading the the the, the cards, it seemed like Kentucky was uh, was going to be a candidate to be uh, uh, left out of the you know the, yeah, the prize. I, 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 I think I think Ricky that you know John John Wine. I can't blame him for this. I mean he every time he had a chance to take some money off of the table, uh, he, he did. And uh, you know he starting with selling me and then uh, and then dispersing in the players and but but you know as you said then he went and bought an NBA uh, franchise. Uh, in in Buffalo, but I, I believe in my heart of hearts that if we had been able to keep that team, uh, that 1975 championship team together, uh, had we kept that team together and and that team had gone into the NBA, I think they would have been just as successful, if not more so, than we were here in Denver. Are are, are you at all surprised that in the 40 years since then that, uh, you know, I know that there's been a time or two when, when the franchises have been relocating where uh, Kentucky has uh, tried to get into the mix. Are, are you at all surprised that Kentucky is, is, has never had a pro- professional, uh, you know, NBA team uh, at all since then? 
Yeah, and and you know, uh, my uh, my dear friend Bruce Miller, who uh, it was that attorney that I referenced earlier, yes. that uh, represented me, and uh, and uh, wrote the letter to the to the Baltimore newspaper. Uh, Bruce has been, uh, you know, for thirty years. He's tried to get a team there, and he thought he was close when uh, when Charlotte went to New Orleans, and he thought he had a chance when. Uh, when Seattle went to uh, went to Oklahoma City, I I really do believe that uh, that Louisville could support a team. Now it'd have to be a good team, you know. It couldn't it uh, at, at least at some point, you know. It couldn't be a team that won thirty games because they wouldn't be very supportive of that after the first couple of years. But uh, I I think they I think they would support a team and. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to see the Kentucky Colonels playing again in the NBA. That, that'd be a real kick. Yeah, that's, that's my dream. Even though I live in Chicago now, I think I would definitely get back down to, uh, to Louisville for a couple of games and, and see them when they come to town. I, uh, you know, let me ask you, uh, just a, a question or two about the NBA. And, and I, and then I really want to talk with you, uh, to wrap things up uh, about the great work that you're doing with the Dropping Dimes Foundation. Um, but it, it, those first seasons in the NBA, um, what for you were the differences that you noticed between, um, and and you can take this question however you want on the on the, uh, the court off the court. Uh, what were the differences that that really struck you, being a six year ABA veteran who was getting your first taste of the way that things were done in this uh, other league? I, I think on the court uh, there wasn't a whole lot of difference. Uh, what what really what what I was really surprised about because being in the ABA, you know, we all kind of thought we were underdogs and we we all had this mentality that it was us against the world and and you know by the end of the of the ABA there were so few teams, you know, it seemed like you were playing a team every week or two and you really got you 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 had an opportunity. To develop relationships with the other players, uh, to, to know the other players, and and we would go out. You know, it, it, you might go out with a couple guys from the other team to get something to eat after after a game, uh, and and that lack of camaraderie, uh, the lack of relationships between the teams in the NBA was really really surprising. I mean, you you know you. You didn't get to know anybody on the other teams. You barely spoke to anybody on the other team, and so uh, that I think is was what really hit me the most. The, the biggest difference between the ABA and the NBA. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense because you guys uh, having such a relatively small league, it was it was almost uh, it was almost like baseball in a sense. You would play these teams, <laughs> you'd see them a lot of times during the regular season. <laughs> It seemed like we were on that bus to Indianapolis about once a week. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, speaking of uh, speaking of the the NBA and the ABA for that matter, just the grind of professional basketball. You are noted for for your durability, and over the course of your fifteen year career, I believe that you missed something like 
two dozen games to injuries in 15 years. And as I was looking at your numbers today, uh, I believe you missed 13 uh, regular season games over your first 13 years in the league. So you were a real slacker, Dan, you know, setting out one game a year. Uh, what Can you begin to explain to somebody who is not um, accustomed to that kind of environment the, the, the wear and tear of uh, traveling around the country and playing 82 or 84 basketball games, as the case may have been? Yeah, Ricky, I tell people I didn't run fast enough or jump high enough to get hurt. So that's, <laughs> that's, why, that's why I didn't miss any games. I, you know, it was a different mentality. I mean, the, the money is so big now. I mean, you know, you can't blame these kids for, you know, if there's a question, question about their health or, uh, or or an injury, you know, they, they sit out for a week now. And uh, you, you really can't blame them because the money is so big. I, I think my attitude was always, you know, if I if I sat out a game, I was, uh, uh, you know, I wasn't being fair with my teammates. And I'm sure that there were plenty of games uh, that I shouldn't have played, that I, I, I should have sat out. But uh, for some reason, it seemed like whenever I had something bothering me or or wasn't feeling well, I I I played better, and so uh, you know I didn't want to let my teammates down, and and uh, so I I I played, and and I, and I was lucky that I never had a major injury. I don't know that I ever missed two games in a row, and uh, as you said, with the with the schedule and playing as many games and traveling in between, it. Uh, and I, I was very lucky not to. So, Dan, I, talk to me a little bit, if you will, about the Drop in Dimes Foundation. Because uh, some while back, I, I had Darnell Hillman uh, on the podcast and uh, also Scott Tarter, the president of, of Drop in Dimes, uh, joined us on that episode. And uh, the work that's being done now for former ABA players by this uh, organization is just terrific. And I know that yourself and and a number of other former uh, ABA stars are, are involved with this. Uh, could you share for my audience uh, what the Drop in Dimes uh, Foundation is and, and what you guys are, are up to? Yeah, it, uh, and, and uh, Scott Tarter was the, the one who first contacted me, and, and he and a couple of his friends uh, were huge ABA fans uh, growing up, and they, they got to know some of those uh, uh, old pacers. I talked about Bob Nedelicki a minute ago and Darnell Hillman and, and uh, Mel Daniels, God rest his soul, was very active until his passing. Uh, and and uh, and they're getting other uh, ABA players from other teams uh, in, in, involved now. And it's, it's basically, uh, you know, Scott had heard some stories about former ABA players who uh, you know, were homeless and, and didn't have money to take care of their bills and and started this this foundation and dropping dimes refers to an assist and 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 it it's all about assisting former ABA players that are down on their luck and one of the things uh, that one of the important things and, and you know uh, we're able to help with uh, some bills and and dental work and uh, health care and things like that but I think one of the best things they've done and, and not very many people knew that there was 
ABA uh, retirement money out there. And uh, evidently this was a fund that uh, had started and, and was uh, being overseen by uh, some people in San Antonio that were with the old Spurs club. And so they've been able, I know, I know a couple of, uh, of former players, teammates of mine, on that championship team that we talked about, that they've been able to uh, to go and, and and you know it's not a lot of money but it's it's twenty five thirty forty thousand dollars that they've been able to get for these uh, for these guys uh, out of this retirement fund that that nobody even knew existed and so um, it's uh, it's a marvelous organization and it's, and it's growing all the time and. Uh, I don't know what we'll do with it when all of us ABA players are dead, but uh, but right now it's uh, it, it's really doing great work, and I have to commend uh, the basically the old Pacer team, uh, Scott and and uh, and his friends in the law office that are doing this because uh, we've been able to really help some people out that needed it. That's abs- absolutely terrific, uh, and uh, of course you can go to uh, the, uh, their website. Uh, Dropping Dimes is on uh, uh, Twitter as well. If you if you Google that, you'll be able to find it. And uh, certainly, any any donations from the public are are are, are welcome as, as well, right, Dan? Absolutely. If uh, you know if you're uh, if you remember the ABA and got any uh, any enjoyment. Uh, out of watching that league and those players, uh, you know, anything you can do helps, that's for sure. All right, Dan, i, I got to ask you before we go real quick, what do we have to do to get George McGinnis in the Hall of Fame? That, you know what, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And uh, they, they, they had a, um, an ABA committee, the Hall of Fame, wanted to make sure that uh, that nobody that uh, had fallen through the cracks that uh, from the ABA that deserved to be in it. And, of course, the, the first uh, uh, selection from the ABA committee uh, was Artis Gilmore, who should have been, as George should be, should have been in the hall a long time ago. And then uh, people like Mel Daniels and Roger Brown and, uh, and Louis Dampier and Slick Leonard were all elected to the Hall of Fame by that ABA committee, but unfortunately, uh, they they no longer have the ABA committee. So uh, George will have to go to the Veteran Committee, uh, and we, you know they only put in one a year, and there's a lot of deserving people. But uh, uh, they, you know, they it used to say you know write a letter or have somebody, but. Uh, that the Hall of Fame has gotten so secretive of who's on those committees and and how those players are chosen, it's it's very difficult. But uh, I agree with you one hundred percent. George McGinnis was a heck of a player, and he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Dan Issel, you're 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 a Hall of Famer, uh, collegiate legend at the University of Kentucky, and um, I, I think most of all, you're you're a good guy. I, I appreciate you so much coming on the podcast. You you elevate the enterprise uh, with your participation in this podcast. You make me look good, so I sure do appreciate you being my guest today. <laughs> Thank you, Ricky. I'd love to join you anytime. What a pleasure it was to speak with Dan Issel today as a 
good friend of mine described it to me once. Dan is Kentucky royalty, and uh, it really is true. Uh, what, what a treat for this Kentucky kid to have the opportunity to speak with Dan today. I thank Dan so much for coming on the podcast and look forward to having him uh, on the show again at some point. My guest next week is one of the greatest voices in the history of boxing. Uh, you may know him from the 20-plus years that he was on ESPN as an analyst and as a blow-by-blow announcer. And for the past decade-plus, uh, you can see him and hear him on Showtime. Al Bernstein will join me, and we'll be talking about the greatest fights of all time. We'll get Al's recollections on some of the bouts that he's seen up close and personal, such as Hagler-Hearns, which a lot of people consider to be maybe the greatest fight of all time. We'll see where Al ranks it. Uh, We're going to talk about some mythical matchups. Who would win if you put 1980s Mike Tyson against 1960s Muhammad Ali? I'm sure that Al is going to have some opinions on that. How about Sugar Ray Leonard? against Floyd Money Mayweather. That's another one that we'll have to debate. And I'm going to get Al to talk a little bit about who he considers to be his, quote, most unbeatable heavyweight of all time. And I know that his answer is going to surprise you. We'll have all that and more when Al Bernstein joins me on the show. Until then, I'm Ricky Cobb, and I'll catch you next time on the Super 70 Sports Podcast.